This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Victims' Rights, The Biblical View of Civil Justice by Gary North. Copyright 1990, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Chapter 9. The Pitfalls of Negligence. And if a man shall open a pit, or if a man shall dig a pit, and not cover it, and an ox or an ass fall therein, the owner of the pit shall make it good, and give money unto the owner of them, and the dead beast shall be his. Exodus 21, 33, and 34. Here is another variation of the restitution principle. A man digs a pit for some reason and fails to cover it. This is negligent behavior. He knows that unsuspecting people or animals could fall into the pit and be harmed. His failure to go to the expense of covering the pit is an example of what economists call externalities. He imposes the risk of an injured beast on the owner of the beast. By saving time and money in not covering the pit, he thereby transfers the economic burden of risk to someone else. This is a form of theft. Someone who cannot benefit from the use of the pit is expected to pay a portion of its costs of operation, namely, the risk of injury to any animal that might fall into it. This is the meaning of economic externalities. Those who cannot benefit from an economic decision are forced to pay for part of the costs of the operation. Biblical civil law settles the question of property rights and the responsibilities of ownership. Because the Bible affirms the rights of private ownership, meaning legal immunities from interference by either the state or other private citizens in the use of one's property, it therefore imposes responsibilities on owners. The law regulating uncovered pits is not an infringement on private property rights. On the contrary, it is an affirmation of such rights. By linking personal economic responsibility to personal private ownership, biblical civil law identifies the legal owner of the pit, namely, the person who is required to pay damages should another person's animal be killed by a fall into the unsafe pit. He receives some sort of advantage from the pit, and therefore he must bear the expense of making it safe for other people's animals. Pit is a classification used for centuries by the rabbis to assess responsibility and damages. The Mishnah specified that any pit ten handbreadths deep qualifies as deep enough to cause death, and therefore is actionable in cases of death. If less than this depth, the pit is actionable in case of injury to a beast, but not if the beast died. Writes Jewish legal scholar Shalom Albeck, quote, This is the name given to another leading category of tort, and covers cases where an obstacle is created by a person's negligence and left as a hazard by means of which another is injured. The prime example is that of a person who digs a pit, leaves it uncovered, and another person or an animal falls into it. Other major examples would be leaving stones or water unfenced and thus potentially hazardous. The common factor is the commission or omission of something which brings about a dangerous situation and the foreseeability of damage resulting. A person who fails to take adequate precautions to render harmless a hazard under his control is considered negligent, since he is presumed able to foresee that damage may result and he is therefore liable for any such subsequent damage. Samson Raphael Hirsch, the brilliant mid-19th century Jewish Torah commentator, analyzed the economics of negligence 
under the general heading of property, and property under the more general classification of guardianship. Quote, Man, in taking possession of the unreasoning world, becomes guardian of unreasoning property, and is, re is responsible for the forces inherent in it, just as he is responsible for the forces of his own body. For property is nothing but the artificially extended body, and body and property together are the realm and sphere of action of the soul, for example, of the human personality, which rules them and becomes effective through them and in them. Thus is the person responsible for all the material things under his dominion and in his use, and even without the verdict of a court of law, even if no claim is put forward by another person, he must pay comp compensation for any harm done to another's property or body for which he is responsible. End quote. The guardian is always responsible before God for the administration of everything under his legal authority. Hirsch goes so far as to say that our willingness to indemnify a victim is not enough, morally speaking. We must take care not to allow damage in the first place. Quote, Once you have done harm, the only thing you are able to do is to pay compensation. You can never undo the harm and wipe out all its consequences. A righteous person should become a blessing for those around him. You, with all your belongings, should become a blessing. Be on your guard that you and your belongings do not become a curse. Watch over all your belongings so that they do no harm to your neighbor. And also, what you throw away or pour away, see to it that it do no harm. You, you ought to bring good, so do not bring evil. End quote. Thus, our economic responsibility is an active responsibility. We must actively seek to avoid harming others. It is within this moral framework that the Bible discusses the uncovered pit. Animals and Children This case law deals specifically with animals. It does not mention people. Why not? Because the pit is almost certainly located on the land of the person who digs it. An animal that wanders onto the man's property has no understanding of private property rights. Presumably, no fence has restrained it from coming onto the property. If a fence is present then the animal would have to knock it down to get onto the property. The damage to the fencing would then be the responsibility of the owner of the animal. He should have restrained his animal. The fence, in such an instance, serves as the legal equivalent of a cover. But unrestrained access to the area of the uncovered pit places the responsibility on the landowner. An animal is not expected to honor the law against trespassing. What holds true for an animal is also true for a young child. If the child is not restrained by a fence or a cover over the pit, then the owner is liable. Like an ox with a reputation for violence, so is the uncovered pit. The owner is responsible. The parents of a child who is killed by a fall into an uncovered pit are entitled to the same restitution as the heirs of a victim of an ox that was known to be dangerous. A responsible adult who comes onto another person's property and falls into a pit has to have a legitimate reason for being there. If the uncovered pit is located on a path over which a visitor might normally pass, and the pit is not easily visible, then the owner becomes legally responsible. The visitor, in this instance, is like a dumb animal. He is not aware of special prohibitions against walking in the vicinity of the uncovered pit. But if the visitor has climbed over a fence, and is wandering over the property in the dead of night, where he has no reason to be, then the owner is innocent." If the intruder ignores no trespassing signs, he is also unprotected by the covered pit law. He is not to be treated in a literate culture as if he were a dumb animal. Albeck comments, quote, If the boar, pit, 
for example, the hazard, is adequately guarded or left in place where persons or animals do not normally pass, such as one's private property, no negligence or presumed foreseeability can be ascribed and no liability would arise, end quote. The pit digger is required to reimburse the owner of the dead beast. The latter can then buy a replacement for the dead animal. The pit digger becomes the owner of the dead animal. In Israel, he could have sold it or eaten it, since it died of a known cause. It did not die of itself, which would have made it forbidden meat for Israelites, Deuteronomy 14.21. The pit digger does not suffer a total loss. In modern times, people build swimming pools on their property. These are certainly uncovered most of the swimming season. They are holes in the ground. Are these the modern equivalent of a pit? No. A pit is a hole in the ground which is not expected. It is not readily visible. A swimming pool has a cement deck around it. It may have a diving board. It is plainly visible in the backyard. It is anything but inconspicuous. Besides, if an animal falls into it, it will swim out. If a small child falls into it, liability could be imposed on the owner only under the railed roof statute, Deuteronomy 22.8, not under the uncovered pit statute. The pool is a place of entertainment and recreation, just as flat roof housetops were in the ancient world. It is not a pit which men stumble into unexpectedly. The so-called attractive nuisance problem, a dangerous object to which small children are attracted, falls under the railing statute. Prohibiting Future Violations A modern application of this law would assess subsequent personal liability to someone who would place an abandoned refrigerator with a lock latch in the alley behind his home without first removing the door. A child might play hide-and-seek by climbing into the refrigerator and shutting the door. Such stories were familiar throughout the 1940s and 1950s. Courts did not always impose penalties on the owners, but by the 1960s, the products were deemed in innately unsafe by the authorities. The sale of lock-latch refrigerators was banned in the 1960s in the United States. Doors that can be pushed open from the inside were made mandatory for producers of refrigerators. Such laws are passed primarily because judges have refused to honor the principle of holding owners personally responsible for uncovered pits. The Old Testament did not require the civil government to impose fines on people who dug pits and then failed to cover them. It did not create an army of enforcers. Instead, it assigned individual responsibility to owners of dangerous property. The civil government let men's fear of their legal liability serve as their incentive to make their property safer. There are definite economic effects of legislation that assesses economic penalties before an accident occurs. These effects are seldom considered by legislators or by the special interest groups that lobby for such legislation. In the case of lock-latch refrigerators, the original product had definite advantages. When the door was closed, it audibly snapped shut. The new no-lock doors sometimes fail to close tightly, but users are not always alerted because of the absence of the old snap when this happens. These doors are less efficient than older doors in this respect. When they are still being used in the kitchen, they are more easily left open by children who find them more difficult to close than the older design, which snapped shut easily. As a result, food rots from time to time, and the costs are borne by the owner. It seems certain that a few lives are saved each year by this legislation, but there never were hundreds of cases of smothered children in any year. It was a newspaper-worthy occasional event. Millions of refrigerator owners are today subjected to the statistical risk of occasionally leaving a door open and rotting a week's food. 
Predictably, this cost is more difficult to bear for lower-income families since food costs occupy a higher proportion of their household budgets. It may seem callous to compare the cost of spoiled food, no matter how much, with the lives of children, no matter how few. But there are inescapable costs with every desirable benefit. Legislation creates benefits, therefore in a cursed, scarcity-bound world, it necessarily imposes costs. Who benefits? How much? Who pays? How much? These questions should always be asked before any piece of legislation is voted on. When society adopts a utopian legal code which proclaims better millions of extra dollars spent by consumers on a safer product design than one child dead from an accident, it places an impossibly expensive burden on society, the expense of seeking an impossible goal, risk-free existence. Besides, legislators honor the better millions of dollars than principle only when it is cost-effective to them as politicians, that is, only when adversely affected voters will not be numerous enough or sufficiently well-organized to threaten them at the next election. For example, far more children are killed in one year in home fires than ever died in abandoned refrigerators. Many lives could be saved by legislating and continually enforcing the installation of smoke detectors in every home. Legislators could also require fire escape drills on parents twice a year, with penalties for violating the rule. Parents today refuse to accept the level of perpetual interference in their lives by the police that the enforcement of such a law would require. So, legislators in this case ignore the principle of better millions of dollars than. They honor it only when few lives are involved. For example, asphyxiated children in refrigerators. And only a few companies need be monitored. For example, appliance manufacturers. First, legislators refuse to make owners legally liable for damages, as the Bible requires. Second, they pass laws, or allow the bureaucracy to define and then enforce earlier laws, whose costs to the general public are not immediately perceptible, for example, rotten food produced by no-lock latches. In short, they pass pieces of legislation with minimal political and statistical impact for good or evil in terms of the utopian better millions of dollars than principle, but fail to honor it in statistically relevant cases because of the equally relevant, to them, political backlash they would receive from voters. The proclamation of the better millions of dollars than principle has been, is, and will continue to be the product of economic ignorance and political hypocrisy. This is not to say that it is always wrong to require owners to pay more in order to save lives. But the Bible provides us with the proper guidelines, not some hypothetically universal utopian principle that would necessitate the creation of a messianic state. The general principle is simple. Those who own a known dangerous object are legally responsible for making it safer for those who are either immature or otherwise unwarned about the very real danger. Public Pits There are areas of life that are almost always the responsibility of the civil government. Highways are one example. If people are to use the highways, they need protection, both as drivers and pedestrians. The civil government erects stop signs and stoplights. It places other road signs along the highways so that drivers can drive more safely and make better high-speed decisions. Similarly, residential areas and school zones are restricted to slower traffic. This protects pedestrians and homeowners who would otherwise face the continual threat of high-speed vehicles that are difficult to control in tight quarters. 
The posting of a speed limit is essentially the same as a private citizen who posts a no trespassing sign or a beware of dog sign on his property. The sign serves as a substitute for the cover for the pit sign. The sign, like the cover, is a device for protecting the innocent. Where children in cities are forced to cross busy streets, local governments hire crossing guards to control traffic and help younger children across the street. Sometimes, older students in a grammar school serve as unpaid crossing guards in a safety patrol. In some communities, fenced, overhead ramps are built across busy highways. The fence serves as a means of protection for, one, pedestrians who might fall off the overpass, and two, motorists who face risks from vandals who would drop heavy rocks onto the passing cars beneath. But fences are expensive, and they cannot be built in every residential area. Thus, the civil government establishes speed limits, and it posts signs that warn drivers of these limits. A philosophy of nearly risk-free existence would impose speed limits on no more than a few miles per hour on all drivers, except perhaps on specially designed highways. But voters, who are both pedestrians and drivers, would not long tolerate such utopian restrictions. In most places in the United States, voters drive far more hours during the day than they walk, so they will not allow defenders of the rhetoric of risk-free living to have their way. They make judgments as individuals that legislators must respect in the aggregate speed limits that meet the needs of voters, both as drivers and pedestrians, or the parents of pedestrians. Once the speed limit is posted, people make personal adjustments, both as drivers, by slowing down to approach the legal limit, but letting pedestrians look out more for themselves, and as pedestrians, by reducing their watchfulness about cars, so long as cars are moving at or near the posted speed limit. Voters compromise slower speeds close to schools, but faster speeds on highways. Drivers who violate these limits are increasing the statistical risk of walking in a neighborhood. Residents believe that they have been granted a degree of safety by the authorities, not perfect safety, since automobiles are still permitted in the area, but calculable safety. They use the streets and sidewalks in terms of this greater degree of safety. But pedestrians and other slower drivers are threatened by those who refuse to honor the posted speed limit. They have made decisions in terms of a given environment, 25 miles per hour, and a lawbreaker unilaterally alters this environment. He has, in effect, torn down the protective fencing. He has uncovered the pit. Fines and Restitution What is the proper remedy? Most communities impose fines for excessive speeding, with the fines proportional to the violations. A higher fine for a higher speed. Can a fine be justified biblically? Yes. The fine is imposed because a specific victim cannot be identified. No one was injured by the speeding vehicle. Therefore, the civil government collects a restitution payment in the name of all the victims who had their lives and property threatened by the Speeders Act. A statistically measurable risk of injury was transferred by the speeder to those in the area of a speeding vehicle. This is another case of externalities. People are being forced by the speeder to bear risks involuntarily. The fines should be used to establish a trust fund for future victims of hit-and-run accidents, where the guilty party cannot be located and or convicted. The perpetrator of this victimless crime becomes a source of restitution payments for the subsequent victims of this same criminal act by an unconvicted agent. Fines are therefore an acknowledgment by the authorities of the limits placed on their knowledge. If law enforcement authorities were omniscient, 
all restitution payments in a biblical society would go from the known criminal to the known victim. Fines should be imposed by local authorities for a specific purpose, to make restitution payments to victims who reside in the same general neighborhood. The civil government acts as a trustee for future victims in cases where the authorities cannot locate or convict the violator. Fines are not to be regarded as a normal source of revenue for the civil government. The civil government must enforce biblical law without prejudice. The bureaucrats' fond hope of collecting municipal operating revenues from fines creates prejudice. In a biblical commonwealth, taxes are supposed to finance the civil government, predictable taxes that are collected from every responsible adult in a community. Citizens must know what law enforcement is really costing them, setting up speed traps along the highway so that non-residents can be forced to finance the local government is a gross perversion of the function of the fine. This subsidizes local bureaucrats rather than assisting future victims. Drunk Drivers An individual who deliberately distorts his own perceptions is implicitly attacking God and his God-created environment. He is saying by his actions that God has not been fair to him in placing him in such an environment. He then makes decisions under the influence of alcohol or drugs that can physically damage others because of his self-induced, distorted perceptions. Drunk drivers are therefore to be prosecuted as criminally negligent should their acts cause damage. They have torn off the pit cover with impunity. Their injury-inflicting acts are not to be considered by acts as accidents, meaning low-probability events that cannot reasonably be predicted in advance in the life of any specific individual. Their injury-inflicting actions are rather the product of an act of moral rebellion the implicit denial of their own personal responsibility for their actions. The Pitfalls of Negligence Drunk drivers impose increased statistical risks on their potential victims. The victim or their heirs must be given the legal option of imposing a heavy restitution payment under the guidance of the judges. Where there is no victim, the drunk driver must pay the fine. Repeated convictions for drunk driving indicate moral rebellion. Here is a person who has the equivalent of a notorious ox, the lawless beast is inside him. Worse, he is responsible in a way that a beast is not. He has moral insights concerning the consequences of his acts that a beast does not possess. The authorities can legitimately tie him up by revoking his right to operate a vehicle until he has demonstrated his continued sobriety for a fixed period of time. Like a notorious ox that must be fenced until it becomes self-disciplined, so is the drunk driver or the repeat speeder or the driver who drives under the influence of drugs. There may not be identifiable victims, but there are certainly statistical victims whose interests need protection. The same principles of economic analysis that apply to speeding and drunk driving can be applied to other areas of life in which the state is the primary protector of life and limb. Fines to the civil government should be imposed on convicted violators only in cases where the civil government is acting as a trustee for future unknown victims. Political Hypocrisy The problem today is that the society refuses to accept the morally and legally binding nature of Old Testament legal principles of criminal negligence. First, legislators do not consistently make pit owners legally liable for damages, as the Bible requires. The most flagrant example is the failure of state and local governments to impose stiff fines on all drunk drivers and capital punishment on drunk drivers whose unsafe driving leads to someone else's death. Furthermore, 
Politicians do not impose fines on themselves or city employees for failing to repair public streets with potholes, which cause damages to people's cars or which cause accidents. Second, politicians pass safety laws or allow the bureaucracy to define and then enforce earlier laws, whose costs to the general public are not immediately perceptible. They may require automobile companies to install seatbelts that buyers do not want to pay for and which occupants subsequently refuse to use. But politicians are not about to pass a law that would impose fines on families for refusing to install smoke detectors in their own homes. The first piece of legislation would not gain the reprisal of voters. The second probably would. Third, because of the rise of state-financed health care, politicians can justify intrusions into the lives of citizens on this basis. Because taxpayers must pay for the injuries that are the result of carelessness, it is a responsibility of the state to force people to be more careful. A good example of a compulsory personal safety law is the law requiring motorcyclists to wear crash helmets. In a free market social order, if a cyclist sustains head injuries in a one-man crash, he hurts only himself. But because of the spread of socialized medicine, politicians can justify helmet laws politically. This line of reasoning can be used to pass almost any kind of safety legislation in the name of reducing potential accidents. Safety laws become in principle open-ended if their justification is the possible burden to taxpayers that an injury might produce. This socialization of health care can lead step-by-step to the socialization of all of life. This is not to say that it is always wrong to require owners to pay more in order to save lives, but the Bible provides us with the proper guidelines, not some hypothetically universal utopian principle that would necessitate the creation of a messianic state. The general principle is simple. Those who own a known dangerous object are legally responsible for making it safer for those who are either immature or otherwise unwarned about the very real danger. Conclusion Ownership is a social function. There is a link between the costs and benefits of lawful ownership. He who benefits from the use of private property must also bear the costs of ownership. He cannot legitimately pass on the costs to other people, who have not voluntarily agreed to accept these costs. He is also responsible for the risks of physical damage that he imposes on them without their prior knowledge and consent. The pit digger must cover the pit or be responsible for the consequences. The owner of an unpenned notorious ox is equally responsible. Beasts are not expected to understand property rights. The owner must fence his property or cover his pit or pay restitution to the dead beast's owner. He cannot legitimately pass on the risk associated with uncovered pits to his neighbors. The civil government has an analogous responsibility to protect those who use the property which belongs to or is administered by the state. Thus, speed limits, crossing guards, and school safety patrols are created. Patrol cars monitor traffic in neighborhoods. Fines are collected from speeders and other traffic violators. Why fines? because there are limits on the knowledge of law enforcement authorities. Thus, fines are used as a way to collect restitution payments from known violators and to make payments to victims of unknown violators. Responsibility is personal, and it involves every area of authority exercised by an individual. The civil government has the obligation of setting forth principles of judicial interpretation that will prevail in any civil court. The court will look at the circumstances surrounding the injured party, and determine who was responsible. 
If the property owner was attempting to pass on involuntarily to innocent third parties the risks of ownership, the court will find the owner guilty. All property owners know this in advance, and they could take steps to reduce their legal risks by reducing involuntary risks borne by innocent third parties. The Bible does not warrant the establishment of a huge bureaucracy to define every area of possible risk, promulgate minute definitions of what constitutes unlawful uses of property, and describe in detail every penalty associated with the violation. The Bible certainly does not indicate that the civil government is warranted to step in and proclaim a potentially injurious action illegal, except in cases where the violator could not conceivably make restitution to all the potential victims, for example, fire codes, or in cases of repeated violations, the notorious ox principle. The Bible simply reminds property owners of the consequences of creating hazards to life and limb for third parties who were not consulted in advance concerning their willingness to bear the risks. The property owner is assumed to be competent to make judgments for himself concerning the consequences of his actions, and then take the steps necessary to reduce his risks.